something that I did along the way, I'm not sure who told me to do it, but we kind of, um, we had a very good lifestyle while we, we were doing whatever we wanted, uh, traveling, etc. And um, I just took the time to document all my expenses, um, everything. Like, I, uh, you know, it, it probably took a couple months, but exactly what is it that uh, our lifestyle costs? Um, putting through kids through school, university, whatever savings, groceries, um, and we took very elaborate trips. I just put it all down. And so I kind of had a very good handle of exactly what our lifestyle would cost. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, then I'm sure you're either in the process of selling your company or you hope to one day exit your business. But have you ever thought that one day you might look back and regret selling? Whether you wish you were still running the day-to-day or maybe you realize that you could have gotten more for your company. Well, if you want to avoid seller's regret, then you're going to love today's guest, Rory Fat. But before we get there, I've linked a wonderful article written by John, which describes the four stages of exit wealth that I thought you'd find extremely valuable. And I've actually linked that article in the show notes page over at builttosell.com, along with everything referenced during today's podcast episode between John and Rory. Okay, so let me tell you about today's guest, Rory Fat, who built a software company that helps small businesses market their products and services through offering rewards to loyal customers. Now, during today's episode, I want you to be on the lookout for the exercise Rory went through prior to selling his company and how that could benefit you and help you avoid seller's regret. Here to share with John, his story is Rory Fat. Enjoy. Rory Fat, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. I'm excited. Uh, I've been listening and uh, I'm a great follower for a long time now, so I'm really happy and excited to be part of this today. That's so cool. You know, like I sit here in my desk and I listen to this. You know, like I do the show, and sometimes it's like like there's a tree fall in the forest. Does anybody actually listen? So it's great that you have listened and that there are other yes. people that find value. So that's awesome. I'm thrilled. Huge value. Thank you for what you do. You're very helpful to entrepreneurs. It's well, a lonely it's, world out there for us entrepreneurs, and everyone it, seems to be after us. It is. I know you've been involved in lots of businesses, but we chose to talk about this business, Royalty Rewards. Can you describe the genesis of the business? Like, what did you do? So, just briefly, the precursor to this was kind of a co- uh, an information marketing business that helped um, restaurant owners. Um, uh, teach them about database marketing and information marketing and collecting data, sending out newsletters and birthday cards and stuff. So that goes back. That, that's the precursor. And really what happened was people said, okay, that's really great, Rory, but can you do this for us? We want you to do the marketing for us. So Royalty Rewards was a multimedia marketing platform for into business, individual business owners typically mom and pops, um, most of them in the United States, started off with restaurants, expanded into all sorts of brick and mortar businesses, um, auto repair. And so it did all the marketing for them. All they had to do is capture the contact information. We had systems for collecting and linking the purchase behavior of those people. And then we would do all the marketing branded under that business for them. So they would get emails and birthday cards and um, surveys to understand what's happening about from their customers and promote reviews to the customers that really like them. And all under the, let's call it a co-brand of royalty rewards. So the individual business would have um, uh, Joe's Diner MVP program run by royalty rewards, if that makes sense. It does. And 
what the the rewards programs I'm familiar with are like, you know, obviously the airlines and hotels and so forth. So you had a similar model that, that people would earn sort of extras and goodies from going back to the restaurants and other stores that participate in royalty rewards. Yeah, but it would all be one, uh, all under the auspices of one business. So that business, you'd spend so much money in a business, then you'd get a reward. And most of it was monetary, although you could get things like an appetizer or something for your birthday or whatever. But the more you spent, the more rewards and you drive more visits. So it wasn't a discount program. It was designed to get more visits to the business. How did you come up with the money to build this? Because it sounds like the technology here is relatively complex. Did was this a homegrown program? If so, how, how did you come uh, up with the money? That, that's a good question. And um, I've had a, a bunch of different ventures and uh, I'm relatively averse to debt. So I had a very successful business that was my information marketing business. So that really funded this whole business because really the start of it was the existing customers wanting this service, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and so I was able to start it with a private label software, and then um, maybe we'll get into it a little later, that I actually brought that software in-house and had it written and um, was a significant um, uh, thing that I had to overcome creating that software. <laughs> but you started off white labeling an existing platform, yes. built the business up using the customers or leveraging some of the customers right, yeah. loyalty in the information marketing. And then you decided to build your own platform, your technology platform. What precipitated the decision to build your own platform? So two things really. So um, it originally it allowed me to get, using that private label software allowed me to get up and running really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I announced it to my customers. I had like a hundred clients that wanted the service right away. We incorporated, we launched in a couple of months. And so, um, uh, the software provider was very good in helping us get up to speed very quickly. And as I grew, I became um, the bulk of his business. And um, so I funded all the changes, all the staff, like, you know, so I was carrying a big load. And um, over time, I realized that if I ever wanted to sell my business, I'm going to need to own the software. And so I tried to negotiate with him and he was unreasonable. And so um, I, we had a written agreement. It was very detailed that I owned all the, the data. And so then I just went ahead and, and wrote the software, not me personally, but hired someone to write the software so that I could control it. And it actually, um, that was a pretty significant uh, uh challenge that we had to overcome because he um, did not live up to the letter of the agreement and withhold the way he gave us the data was like, let's just say uh, comma delimited format rather than in a a normal um, access database because he tried to argue that the way it was organized was his property. Um, So it took Originally, the budget was like um, 18 months and $350,000, and it ended up costing like um, uh, six times that and taking three times as long. Um, and like there's the a whole worst story. Renovation. I don't know how deep you want to get into it, John. <laughs> well, I think it's it's actually incredibly important because if you're kind of building your house on rented land, eventually that bill comes due, right? And, and in this case, you had a, a, a provider which you were becoming more and more dependent on. We call it Switzerland structure, where you've got a, sure. a supplier who's really, you know, you're very dependent on. But yeah, it can, it can make a huge dent in uh, the value of your company. So I find that fascinating. What, what was unreasonable? Like when you, when you initially started to negotiate, what made you feel like, what he was offering was just so unreasonable that it just didn't make sense. To well, me. so his, his, the software was built on old technology um, and an old software platform. And he wanted several times what I could 
I got quoted to get it built. Um, and I, all I wanted, I, I didn't want to resell it. I just wanted the rights to the code so that I owned it. And then I could, you know, do, do what I wanted with it. Um, so that I could then sell the company. Um, he, uh, had, a disproportionate sense of his value of what he brought to the party. What was driving your interest in selling? I mean, information marketing can be a great way to make a living. Uh, you know, Dan Kennedy and all the way up to, you know, Tony Robbins, there's tons of amazing examples of, of wonderful people that build information marketing companies. One of the Achilles heels of those businesses, however, is that they tend to be episodic and dependent on the personality, right? If the personality is not showing up at the conference, then, you know, there's, there's no conference and, and, and little in the way of sort of transferable value. Was that part of what was going into your decision to build the software company, the marketing company, because you, you wanted something that was a transferable asset? Um, absolutely. Uh, when I built Royalty Wards, I built it uh, with the idea in mind of having something to sell. So I already learned what you just described in my information marketing business that I knew that it was all about me. And I was also uh, predicated on having big events. And I don't know if you remember SARS, what year was that? 2005 or whatever it was. was the COVID warm-up round. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah. and so I was, the events I put on, the whole profit of the company I had was relying on people showing up to events. Mm -hmm. And so um, if the profit wasn't the registration fees, it was the sales that happened at the event. And so around that time, I knew other people that had seminars that were happening at that and it was just a disaster and i said i just don't want my livelihood relying on this i want a business that's not rory fat that's not my identity that i can sell because i wanted to accumulate wealth so it was carefully orchestrated it wasn't an accident when i started it i said i want to sell this so this was one reason i i needed to overcome this and another one is a trademark, which I'm not sure if we're going to get into it, but I had a very significant issue around that, which um, was kind of a similar thing. And they were happening around the same time. <laughs> wow, that's that's crazy. Before I go to the, the trademark issue, just the two million bucks that the software ultimately, I'm just doing the rough math, 350 yeah, yeah, grand was yeah. the original thought times six is around 2 million. Yeah, yeah, so how did right. you finance the $2 million nut? Is it still coming from in the information business or did you raise some money or what was that? Um, well, so the, so um, the information business was, you know, I was putting less, less energy into it. So really royalty rewards was kicking out profits. It was a very profitable company. Plus I still had the information, but it was all self-funded. Got it. Got it. Well, let's talk about the trademark issue. What was that and what happened there? So so one day, I guess it was maybe in about 2011, I get a call from a customer and they said, congratulations. And uh, it might have been an email or anyway, I said, well, what are you talking about? Thank you for, <laughs> um, for landing the Red Robin account for your loyalty program. And of course, most of my clients were independent business owners and I'm going, well, what are you talking about? I mean, quick Google determined that they decided to uh, launch a loyalty program with a very confusing name and logo that made it look like it was ours. Um, so like that, I don't know how much people understand about uh, trademark law, particularly in the United States, but we were around way before them. We were in every state and in Canada. So we had precedents. We had a registered trademark. Actually, ironically, um, Hilton had royalty rewards registered before I registered it, but they let it go. And I was waiting on the sidelines before I could register it. And so I did register anyway. So I had all my ducks in a row and of course, you know, uh, tried to negotiate with them and said, you know, cease and desist, uh, you know, tried to be nice, you know, you know, with them, obviously they're a very big company. Um, and, uh, so I had to, to sue them. Started litigation. And what was that? Not like? a little company. Yeah. What was that like? Um, 
stressful, uh, traumatic. Um, uh, it was very hard uh, uh, because you're there. They're a $1.2 billion company. And, you know, here I am, this, this uh, small entrepreneur. Um, I mean, I don't know if people have had legal battles, but I remember getting on a plane to go to Minneapolis for, um, you know, discovery or something. And you get all the way there and, oh, they just, they don't show up. And, um, you know, they just got unlimited resources. Um, they countersued me and it was kind of a ridiculous countersuit, um, which actually helped me. I had very good um, insurance, uh, E&O insurance. Here's um, options, yeah. Uh, and I, I had a company called Chubb, which was a very good company. And so when they countersued me, it actually helped fund the lawsuit because anything that was to do with defending myself, my insurance company had to pay for. Um, so that kind of helped pay for part of it, but uh, a long drawn out process, probably went a year and a half um, total. I, I, and this was years ago, getting close to a half million bucks. Um, and, and ironically, while that happened, so here I am on the ropes, totally focused. And, and if you've gone through all this, you have to do these um, tests of the public surveys to see if there's confusion in the marketplace. You have to buy experts, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, I went in for discovery. They got two lawyers peppering me with questions, trying to find a little sound bite that I say something wrong. And then, um, uh, so while that's happening, there's another restaurant in Pennsylvania that has a chain of about maybe 15 restaurants. It's been around for a long time. They start a program called Royalty Rewards. And so I had to go to them and say cease and desist because I can't let them do it while I'm fighting this other uh, legal issue. And so they sued me at the same time. So, <laughs> so I'm fighting two lawsuits against two very well financed uh, companies. And luckily I had an excellent uh, insurance company. So when they sued me, it was totally funded by my insurance company. So they got into it for, I'm guessing about 150 grand and caved um, round about the same time. Uh, I think that uh, Red Robin finally realized that um, this is could come out very badly because I was, you know, I wasn't caving, I was financed enough. And um, so then they agreed to settle. So, what advice uh, would you have for an entrepreneur having to defend a lawsuit? And, and again, I ask because I, I think the temptation is, uh, you know, well, I, I've got to watch my pennies and make sure that I, I, I hire a law firm that I can afford. Um, there's another sort of inclination to say, well, I'm going to match fire with fire and, and, you know, play the arms race and, and hire the big firm downtown. But of course, they charge hundreds, if not thousands of dollars an hour. So like what advice would you have for an entrepreneur trying to trying to figure out how to defend him or herself from, a, you know, uh, a lawsuit like this? Um, well, first of all, I'd recommend finding someone that's pragmatic. Um, and, and really uh, uh, straightforward and honest and wants to come up with a pragmatic solution, doesn't just want uh, to see how much they can bill. Um, I mean, it, it's helpful to have good E&O insurance if someone sues you. Um, I don't think people, that might be something that a lot of people don't understand the, the value um, because they're, they're not gonna help you fund you taking aggressive action against someone else. That's not going to help that. And this does not substitute for legal advice. Yeah, yeah. No. I was going to say, we should make sure neither of us are lawyers. <laughs> um, but I, I got the say, LSAT book. Do you remember the LSAT book? Do you ever see that? You just have to study for it. It's like, looked like a phone book, like the old yeah. days, a phone book. And I think I cracked like the, the seal of it once. And I'm like, there's no way I'm reading this thing. No. And, I, and I forever abandoned ideas that I would ever become a lawyer. Um, and, and yeah, no, I, I love law, but I wouldn't want to practice it. And it's good to step. Um, I think 
to be successful in business, you got to have good um, people around you. And that, I, to, to me, pragmatic is really important. Pragmatic. And, and getting a budget and, and holding them accountable and, and making sure all the way along the line that there's not surprises and you're aware. Like he told me up front, you know, if we go to the end zone, it's going to be this. You know, but there's phases, you know, we might, there might be an off ramp here. There might be an off ramp here. Um, and so we, and we continually had those discussions all the way along the way. And so you were in for 500K in legal fees. Uh, and again, if we get into territory, you can't talk about, it. I totally understand that. But did, did, did the settlement that you arrived at, did you get any sort of compensation or was it just you blocked them? So, so. Um, two things. First of all, when I mentioned the number of, uh, it was close to a half a million. Uh, part of that was funded by the insurance company yep. because they funded all the defense. Um, so, so, and then the, uh, then there was a settlement. Um, I can't get into the details, but I will say um, it was a successful uh, uh, result. Uh, they had to change their logo and the name uh, of, you know they agreed to that so but that was negotiated and i will say that you should be aware that that kind of litigation my experience is you're not going to get a big settlement it's it's just kind of a cost of 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 enforcing and owning owning intellectual property and you have to defend it because if you let people encroach on it you don't, it loses its value. You don't own it. Right? Sure, sure. So, so walk me through the business model here because you're charging your clients for access to this platform. Uh, what would they typically pay? Did they pay on a monthly basis? And if so, like, what would a typical like independent restaurant pay for access to the platform? So there, um, and there was a number of different businesses. So depending on uh, how big their database was, but a lot of it was, so there was a database fee, um, and a lot of it was a direct mail was a, a big proponent of it. It was multimedia. So they would also pay for uh, postcards, postage, um, transaction fees. So there was a lot of usage fees. So um, I think where you're heading is kind of like, you know, what's the lifetime value of a customer or what would it? So a restaurant, um, you know, if they had a decent sized database and been around for a while, um, $600 a month, um, all in for, for those things. And, you know, depending on how much you use the program, how big your restaurant was, how big your database was, you know, so. Yeah. And, and what was their churn rate? Like I'm imagining they were fairly sticky once they started a low dollar. Yeah. Yeah. No, once they're in, it was, yeah. So restaurants were, um, probably one of the longest, uh, clients. And so, I think when we did the analysis, the last time I can remember, it was like 46 months. Uh, well, you know, sometimes restaurants just go out of sure, business, sure, right? Sure, sure, Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty so, long, actually. So how big did you get this company before you decided now's the time I want to sell? Um, so... We never got into eight figures, but we were into significantly high seven figures, um, and it grew pretty quickly. Um, so you know, right? I think I was I was making some notes for our interview here. I think like year, uh, our first complete year was like um, uh, I even wrote it down, so I'm going to grab it so I'm accurate. Our first complete year was two point one million. Mm -hmm. Um, so it grew pretty rapidly. And, um, so if I just put the chronology here, it might be helpful. So I actually, the, the litigation for the intellectual property and the trademark that happened first. And, um, it was pretty much all wrapped up in 2012. And in 2011, I started the software project. So those are going on simultaneously. Um, and so the, the software wasn't finished, um, till maybe 2000, late 2016, uh, part of 2017. So, uh, part of what, there's two things that drove this one, 
Um, there was a fair amount of complexity in the business. I live in Canada, had a U.S. company, Canadian company, software. So I was filing U.S. and Canadian taxes. I had U.S. visas. You know, I'm a pretty compliant guy. So, you know, it was complex. Um, and, you know, these two battles were pretty, they took a lot out of me. And I think when the business was growing rapidly, I was so focused on these two issues that in the meantime, there was more com competitors coming into the, to the marketplace. And like now there's like probably hundreds of companies doing what we're describing. And, you know, so, so it started to become uh, the point where, hey, wait a second, I should probably take some chips off the table here. I don't want to have, you know, it was very profitable, you know, once all this was done, uh, so I could, you know, afford to do whatever I wanted. I didn't have any debt. You know, we were able to take whatever money we wanted out of the company. Um, but I recognized it wasn't necessarily going to last forever. And I just wanted chips off the table. So that was probably the driving force. I, I didn't know if I wanted another one of those battles um, again, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I we wrote about it, uh, referring to it as tenderizing, like these battles in business tend to like soften our, our will and, and, and yeah. oftentimes the idea of selling. And I think for a lot of people right now, we're recording this in July 20 or August, 2022, and we're now, no one's sure where inflation's going. And, you know, a lot of businesses have come through COVID and it's like, okay, I can't deal with another shock to the system. Like I'm, I'm out. And it sounds like right. for you, that was what, uh, what you were starting to feel a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And so what, what kind of margin would you put to the bottom line, like an EBITDA margin on your business, like on a normalized basis, once you'd sort of scrubbed out the cost of the legal issue? So, uh, so you're talking about adjusted? Yeah. Is that what yeah. You're yeah. Um, we easily, I would say 16, 17%. Got um, but it was also, I wasn't managing, I was managing it for growth. So, you know, you, you could have easily kind of tried to squeeze out some more. And obviously when I was focusing on these things, I wasn't focused on cost control. So um, there was certainly more room. It was profitable business. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so you, but you came to a point just psychologically where you thought, I, I got to take some tip shop, chips off the table at that point. What were your options? Did, did, you know, did you, were you focused solely on selling the business or would you have, for example, taken on an investor or sold half the business? Like, were, were you open to kind of a, a variety of things or, or really um, to selling? So I wasn't really interested in taking on an investor and I didn't need to. Um, so in 2012, I believe I went to like a seminar about, you know, exiting your business and actually hired an M&A advisor at that time. And then um, we actually went through the process a little bit. They came up with the off offering memorandum. And then I realized that's kind of when I realized, look, I can't sell this with this software issue. And so then I went back, focused on that. And then once the software was done, then I went to market. What was that like to come to the psychological realization that you had such a significant problem in the business that it really wasn't sellable the way it was structured in 2012? Um, well, it, it wasn't really necessarily a negative thing because it was profitable. So, I mean, I had a very good life. We traveled. We had a nice house. Kids could do, we could do whatever we wanted. Um so it wasn't a horrible situation. It just, I just didn't think it was going to necessarily last forever. And, um, you know, my wife made it really clear. She had no interest if there was, you know, something happened to me, she had no interest in, do, you know, the business was just going to close. And so part of me, you know, felt I owed it to the staff and the customers to kind of have a plan so that uh, someone else could, could take over and, and, um, so yeah, I wasn't interested in investor. I didn't need an investor. How many staff did you have? Um, I think about third. We had thirteen, but you know we had some contractors and stuff. 
mm-hmm. um, as well. And actually, interestingly enough, they're all still there. Interesting. Yeah. So where do you go from that? You realize that 2012, it's not going to work. You, you make the changes, you invest in the software and so forth. It's 2016, 17, when you start to get on your front foot again, thinking about yeah. selling. What was the process like? Like, where did you go? Did you hire an M&A firm? You mentioned that you- Yeah, used so I had one already. And so we just, we just went back and we updated everything. And um, so um, at the time, I actually had three companies. So I had the software because I didn't want to have any issue residing in a limited company. I had the operating company. And then, um, and then I had the company in the United States where all the, the, the sales were, were happening. And, and so, because I lived in Canada- so um, when I was going through, we were starting to get a fair, fair amount of NDAs signed and it, it wasn't really going anywhere. So I quickly realized that people kind of thought that structure was too complex and they couldn't really get it, even though um, it was profitable. So I amalgamated the two companies because I had gotten releases from the software company um, that I was using. And so and then things happened really quickly once I simplified the legal structure and got it to the point where there was only two companies, the Canada and the U.S. company. Got it. And so how many companies did you sort of get on the line signing an NDA, sort of interested in the in the book and interested in talking more? So, so I would say, well, over the process, we had dozens of NDAs signed, but I'd say we had three, three or four serious offers um, one that was a little more serious than the others. And so that's when, you know, we started to get into the negotiations. Yeah. And, and did the M&A firm you used uh, sort of structure it in a way that they're, they're trying to create competitive tension where they try to coalesce all the offers sort of around a similar date or a similar kind of time frame? Yeah, yeah, they did. So kind of like an auction process. People had to put in offers. We didn't come up with the valuation. They had to put forward an offer and, uh, you know, tried to create it all around uh, and create sense of urgency. So uh, there was a time sensitive part of it. And that's actually at the time, I don't know if you recall this, but we had some tax changes going on in Canada so that they were really kind of trying to change the, the benefits to entrepreneurs about uh, they, they changed the, the um, allocation of the way certain things worked. And there was a threat of maybe the capital gains exemption even changing. So um, I was emphatic that I wanted to sell shares and not um, assets. And so uh, we made that as, as part of the sense of urgency that we wanted to, to get that done before that might happen. It turns out that particular thing didn't happen, but we certainly used it. Yeah, the shares versus assets thing is not unique to Canada. Of course, that that similar yeah. uh, you, you know uh, issues in other countries with different chat tax and legal structures. So that's something that a lot of our listeners would want to really think deeply about is is the implications to selling the shares of your company versus the assets of your company. So you know, definitely reach out to your advisor on that to understand that in, in specifically to your situation because there, there can be significant tax differences and legal huge, differences. Huge so, difference. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a biggie. So but for you, there were certainly incentives to, to getting a share deal. And of course, for most buyers, they want an asset deal. So so that would have been a, a bone of contention. Interesting. So you, you did you have any sense at this stage before getting serious with any of the three acquirers of what it might be worth? Like were you working on any outside sense of what a business like yours would be worth? Um, maybe I should have, but um, I guess at the time I was kind of emotionally a little done. Um, so I kind of took the perspective that it is worth what I could get. And I, you know, sales had kind of leveled off. And so the growth, I didn't have the same growth story. So um, yeah, it was to me, it was just what can I, what can I get? And let's see what people offer. So I didn't really go out there because if I, if I couldn't get what I thought it was worth or um, a, a, what I would consider a good exit, then I would just keep it. Sure. Um, you know, so I guess, yeah. So no, I did not to answer your question. Yeah. So the, to be clear though, the, the revenue had gone through a, a period of fast growth, but then had sort of stagnated or leveled off a bit. 
profitability. How were you doing in, in 2017 to 18? We still sort of that. Oh, it was actually very profitable because now we had jettisoned all the software expenses. Right. Um, and actually the whole part of the adjusted EBITDA was really important that the buyer would recognize because I was paying the existing software company plus the software development. At one point in time, we had two different software development companies on two continents. It's very <laughs> uh, stressful. But in any event, um, uh, it was important that they recognize that these expenses were only to get the software done. And so um, it was all of a sudden now that that was done, you know, the profits were more dramatic because I didn't have to fund all that. Yeah. That so sense. like on an adjusted basis, we're, we're like you were into the 20s then or like how did you? Um, you no, I'm, I'm giving you these numbers. I'm giving you the adjusted where we were about when we when we were going to market. So got it. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not including, you know, 20 percent profit after legal expenses and software. You know, I'm, I'm saying with those backed out. Yeah. 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 And for folks who may not understand the difference between. EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA. Of course, adjusted EBITDA is once you take out any kind of one-time expenses and there's a whole litany of other adjustments you can make. And there's sometimes a little bit of back and forth with an acquirer who says, well, that's not, that's more like an ongoing expense at the company. And you're, as the entrepreneur, you're making the argument, no, no, that's a one-off. You know, we've, we've made that investment. It's, it's not required. So did you get in any of the back and forth with acquirers around adjustments at all? Was there any well, sort of debate? The final buyer, uh, I felt was very reasonable. And that was part of the reason why I decided to, to sell to them. I think if, if they were unreasonable, I don't think the deal would have gone through. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had a few, you mentioned like kind of three acquires that got serious. Did they put letters of intent in front of you? Like, a, like an actual- Yeah, so we had, I think we had three letters of intent. And there may have been one that was just kind of very verbal and they just were like, it wasn't even point any point putting it in writing because they were just like not in, not in the ballpark and they weren't going to up it. So. Mm -hmm. And so what, what did you, what, what did you find the offers? Like what, like what kind of range of multiples were they in that kind of stuff? So uh, four to six multiple of, of EBITDA. And I know that's not necessarily because um, it wasn't really a strategic, you know, at some point in time, you hope that you're going to find a strategic buyer. Um, and this was probably more a financial buyer. So four to six was kind of um, in the in the realm of, of reasonable. Also, there were some complexities. I was insisting on share sale. I was insisting there was a Canadian and a U.S. part, which made it a little more complex because all the buyers were in the U.S. Um, and all the employees were in Canada. So there were some complexities that, you know, made it uh, so that I wasn't going to get, I didn't think I was going to get like a huge multiple at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But four to six times EBITDA was sort of where the offers were coming in from the three. Yeah, somewhere lower, somewhere yeah. lower. Yeah, yeah, somewhere lower than that. But that's kind of where it ended up in, you know, yeah, in that neighborhood. Yeah. And how did you decide to, to go the, uh, Shanti, Shanti, I think is the name of the, the, the acquirer. If I'm, if I'm correct, is it, I'm pronouncing it Shanti, yeah, that's Shanti right. partners. So that was the best offer. He was the most reasonable, um, the person I was dealing with. And, um, so then we went to, you know, we, we, we wanted to see if the other ones would come up, but that one ended up being, and, and part of it was, the most flexible on, on the other things. Some people, uh, there's one offer that didn't really want any of the employees or not very many of them. Um, another one um, wanted asset sale. And, and um, so, you know, it ticked, it ticked the boxes that were important to me. Oh, and the other thing that was really important was the amount up front. Um, in my mind, what you get up front is you know, really what matters and anything after that is, is, is kind of just icing on the cake. So they were valuing the business in the kind of four to six times EBITDA range. What proportion of that were they willing to pay up front? Um, so we got it to 80%. Wow. Good for you. That's great. And the other 20% was that, how did that, how was that? There, there was no um, requirement for me to do anything for it. We just, there was a four-year note. 
um, for the for the other, which has now been paid out and actually got paid out early. So um, yeah, so it was only twenty percent, and that was um, also we negotiated any sort of uh, reps and warranties or anything that it couldn't be any more than that remaining twenty percent. That was the cap on it. Got it, got it. And that twenty percent. So effectively, you as the entrepreneur uh, are in a way, lending that money to the buyer to buy your business effectively. So you're agreeing to take instead of cash for that 20% uh, to be paid over time, in your case, four years with an interest rate. Do you remember what the interest rate was? Um, At the time, it was 5%. Got it. So it's probably a little bit of a premium on on Prime in those days. At the time, 5% was a bit of a premium. Now it's not so much. Yeah, no, of course, now it's different. But at the time, so you're getting a bit of a coupon and and if they were to uh, not, in this case, they did pay, but if they weren't able to or chose not to pay that, what was your recourse? So I had security. I, um, I, they got some bank financing. So it was after the bank, but I had security after the bank. Um, and I could take, uh, you know, we had that all written up pretty tightly. So um, it would have... Yeah, I could I could go after them if they didn't. Yeah, and so the bank quickly. would be first in line, and then you as the entrepreneur seller would be second in line. Right. Yeah. You had you had that structured. Got it. That's super helpful. That's super helpful. And and did what did Shanti do uh, with the? You mentioned the employees are still there. What 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 was their interest in the business? Like was it was there some well, reason was, they wanted? It was actually surprising to me because I thought that there would be. Um, they had bought other companies and, um, I thought that they had some other reasons for buying it and they have just kind of kept their finger out of it other than a, a weekly. So I had a vice president, she still runs it. Um, and I actually, uh, this is four years down the road now. So, um, I'm still actually helping them and we still have a relationship and, um, she's running the business now. So um, they are just providing advice. They have other businesses in their portfolio. And this is just, uh, it's kind of a hands-off thing. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a, like a great uh, outcome, especially, you know, if you think about your trigger to want to sell, having gone through these very traumatic events with the lawsuits and so forth. I wonder, are there times though now when you see these sort of headlines of software companies trading at multiples of revenue, what's your reaction to, to those? Do, do, you, do you ever sort of think about the decision to sell and, and reflect on what has happened over the four years since then in terms of valuations of, of sort of software yeah, companies? That's, that, no, that's, that's a good question. So yeah, I look at some of those and you wonder, okay, um, could I have sold for more is kind of what you're saying. Um, and I guess if I didn't have those two big battles with the software and the, the, or even just only had one of the two, then I would say I would have been able to kind of take it further, but there was so much competition that had moved in into that segment. And a lot of it had gone digital. We were multimedia and, um, so I don't have any regrets, but here's something that I did along the way. I'm not sure who told me to do it, but we kind of, um, we had a very good lifestyle while we, we were doing whatever we wanted, uh, traveling, et cetera. And um, I just took the time to document all my expenses, um, everything. Like, I, uh, you know, it, it probably took a couple months, but exactly what is it? that uh, our lifestyle costs, um, putting through kids through school, university, whatever savings, groceries. Um, and we took very elaborate trips. I just put it all down. And so I kind of had a very good handle of exactly what our lifestyle would cost moving forward. And so Part of my decision was, uh, will this exit B 
be able to fund my lifestyle that I want for my family for the rest of my life. And, and that made me very confident in my decision. So I wouldn't have any regrets, if that makes sense. And, and I've, I've listened to your show many times. So there's, there's lots of people that have these enormous exits um, and they're great stories to hear. I don't know what stat you use, but I think something like 80% of businesses that want to sell never exit. Is that accurate? John, is that a kind of a... I don't have a number, but I know a lot of businesses don't. So it's sure, I'm sure there's a lot of them. I, I don't know the exact proportion. And so yeah. uh, to me, um, it's kind of like if, if, if anyone's a gambler, and I guess entrepreneurs kind of are, if you're, you know, how long is your lucky run at blackjack going to last? Um, and, you know, I'm not a big gambler, but I, that's, if I'm having a run, I'm taking chips off the table and giving them to my wife or, you know, um, because, because it, 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 it may not last forever. So, um, you know, the corollary to your question is what if it goes to zero? And that was possible. It was definitely possible because there was other businesses that were, you know, super well financed, prepared to take on debt, hiring sales staff. I tried hiring a sales staff. It didn't really work that well for me. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's, that's the opposite that you really need to listen to is not necessarily, uh, well, maybe I could have got more, but maybe you could have got zero. And um, also, I've had a lot of friends, entrepreneurs that have had health issues um, that, uh, you know, they're working so hard, so stressful, they got cancer or they, heaven forbid, something happens and, and they can't enjoy it. And so to me, when I was a kid, um, I didn't have a super, uh, you know, affluent upbringing. My we kind of, my dad struggled with uh, jobs and, and so... I really wanted to be an entrepreneur so I could have the things and afford the things for my family that I didn't have as a kid. And um, so part of me said, like, how big does the pile have to be? Um, you know, after a while, how many times of safety do you need? And then um, and so, you know, looking back on it, I'm just going, I'm so happy. I have no regrets whatsoever because I'm living the life that I want. Um, it enabled me to have financial freedom, which is what I wanted. And now um, I can do what I want. I have freedom from things I don't want to do and freedom to do things I do want to do. And that's pretty empowering. Um, and, you know, let's face it, being an entrepreneur, uh, particularly creating something for strat from, from scratch is stressful. Um, and it's fun. You feel like a pirate, a swashbuckling pirate. But, um, you know, do you want to have all your chips on one bet for too long um, when the wrong number comes up? So um, I have no regrets. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, uh, I'll share a personal story on that, on that front. I, I remember I sold the company, uh, what was it, 2007 or 8, something like that. And... Uh, it was a significant financial event in my life. In any event, I um, I remember not having a lot to do because I wasn't working, <laughs> and I like signed up for um, like all the different loyalty programs because I was like, oh well, if I can bid on, I remember what, what was the bidding site? There was like Priceline. Oh, I don't even know if they exist where you could bid on hotel rooms. I think they still. Oh, like Priceline or right? Something, I, like or I signed no? up for a Priceline yeah. account, and I and I, I looked at all these. And I went through this whole thing where I was like, I was, I was basically trying to be as frugal as I possibly could be, which was so counterintuitive. And I've, I've talked to other entrepreneurs since then and I've, uh, and they've said, yeah, yeah, that happens to everybody. That's what happens when you're living off your capital. It's like right. this weird thing that shifts in one's head that says, oh my gosh, now I'm living off my capital. So I share that personal story because while I kind of intellectually understand the financial freedom stuff, I also know that that once you start living off your capital, it can be it can play tricks with your mind. Like, have you found in this period again? We're talking in twenty twenty two in August, where 
I don't know, like the NASDAQ's probably down 20 points, inflation. Like, how has that been for you to know that, like living off your capital in that way? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I would say um, since it's been four years, I've, I've lived through some things and actually it was kind of helpful for me to be consulting with this business through the last couple of years. And because, um, you know, I've had things to do and I've still been involved in the business, although, you know, less and less over time. But, and getting the income um, too, right? Like the, the checks are coming in from the 20%. So yeah, 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 yeah. And so um, I, I think the key is a diversification. And then the other side of it, I would say is, that, um, you know, all the way along, I've been reasonably, because there's so much risk in your business, um, I've been reasonably conservative with my investments. So, you know, blue chip dividend stocks. And then, you know, then you say to yourself, if you know you're not every year to have the lifestyle that you want, whatever that number is, and, 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 and then you keep enough cash somewhere, in GICs or T-bills or whatever you, you know, whatever you feel comfortable in. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you're okay. It's just, it's kind of like, um, I think that's why it was so important for me to do the exercise to understand what my lifestyle cost. And because I didn't want to change my lifestyle at all. If you know, you know, you know, if you have less obligations, you might travel more. You might, you know, um, and and so I think instead of letting your emotions take over, but really quantifying all those things was helpful for me. Um, and also recognizing if you do have risk in your business, your investments should be like you know. I almost think of like a moat, right? You want to build up this moat of safety. And, and levels, and, you know, I, I've always believed in insurance and all those other things so that, um, you know, I had all those things. And also, for a lot of reasons, I've, um, you know, going back in my career, I had a lot of debt and some nasty things that happened. So I've been kind of debt averse and maybe I could have grown f faster, but I'm confident it doesn't really matter what happens my family and I are, are okay. So, so Rory, walk, um, me through the, walk me through the math you did. Let's just pull up a hypothetical number out of the sky and say, it sounds like you led a, a relatively lavish lifestyle or great lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's say, do you want to pull a number out of that? Like a hundred grand, 200 grand? It, like, like, it doesn't Even really matter more. what number. Let's make it bigger. It's more like, it's because, I mean, sure. whatever the, yeah. So it's, the number is significant. Okay. Um, so, so let's say the number. let's say I want uh, this crazy lavish lifestyle. I want a NetJets card, and I want you know to stay in five star hotels. And I need five hundred grand a year to to finance this elaborate lifestyle. How would you help me figure out what my nut needs to be in order to finance five hundred grand a year? So, so I guess there's two two parts to this question. So the first part is I think it's important. Um, this is just a personal thing about living below our means. And so you could pick a lifestyle that's better than what you're living. And then it's going to cost you more. Right. So that changes the equation pretty dramatically. Sure. So I was just taking an existing lifestyle. So I had the numbers pretty accurately. Um, but uh, so you just start looking at, you know, blue chip banks, um, you know, uh, uh, pipelines, um, diversify, diversifying into, you know, some mainstream uh, uh, blue chip software companies, you know, the S&P 500, you can just buy an ETF, uh, you know, over time it averages whatever. So, so if, if using your example, part of it depends on your age too, I guess, because I, you know, I don't believe in depleting the capital. I only live off the, the income. And so, um, yeah, you just do the math. What are you comfortable at? Now you, you, know, you can start to get GICs for a significant amount of money, but you got to figure out your tax taxes and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, um, so yeah. just to be clear though, would you be looking at like, you know, 
a lot of a lot of folks listening to this show would have heard of the four percent rule. Some some argue a three percent rule is is more conservative. Uh, in order to identify your nut, you could take five hundred grand if you want to use the four percent rule and multiply it by twenty five uh, to get to what you would need. Right. If you're going to draw down uh, the amount over time. Um, but from your perspective, speaking for you specifically, are you living off the dividend income from like bank stocks and stuff like that, are you, because, which can vary based on the bank and how much they're yielding at the time, but it's the dividend income you're basically doing the math on? Yeah. And, and, and I guess over time, if you have to sell things, there's capital gains and you right. know, so, but no depreciation. I've, I've, I've never depreciated capital. And if, you, if you've been invested in the market over time, Yes, this is a correction, but I mean, I think sometimes people look at the gap between the highest point and where it is, and they figure they've lost that money. But no, that you know, if you if you've been in the market for a while, that's not just widen the aperture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's where where did what did you pay for it? And yeah. you know, and, and and you know, if you proceed with dividends, for instance, you're you're making money along the way, um, and and you also have the opportunity for it to grow. But I'm not saying it should all be in the market. You know, you should be diversified, and and you should have a yeah, emergency yeah. fund, and and you should own real estate. Now we're really yeah. sounding like a personal finance <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Why <do> you <laughs> ask me? <laughs> uh, are you up for a lightning round of questions before I let you go? Sure, absolutely. All right. What's the most questionable or slimy trick an acquirer or would-be acquirer tried to play on you? Um, actually, I don't think there. Uh, this is the only one. This is the closest. Um, I guess I was fortunate. I was dealing with you know kind of a credible person, but uh, I remember one of the potential buyers wanted to arrange a call, and I was going to like a um, one of my kids games or something. And um, uh, so we wanted to have this call. So I, I kind of, and I'm pretty adamant about my family. Like I thought, you know, and so anyway, I was driving. And um, so he, he said he was only going to be, um, uh, this was only for his benefit. He had a couple of questions. And then I heard recording call now. And I'm going, what are you doing? Like this calls over. Um, if you aren't telling me that you're going to record it, you're going to try and do it secretly. Um, so what were you going to do with that? And um, I thought that was very questionable and didn't go any farther after that. But I don't know if it's slimy, but. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's something to be aware of. Biggest mistake you made personally in the exit process, not about the business overall, but if you take from the moment you decided to sell to the, you know, the check clearing your bank account, like what, if you could rewind the clock and, and have a mulligan on one move you made, what would it be? I'd say not starting early enough. So like, I mean, when you start the business, you should be thinking about exiting and like that software thing. Maybe I could have started it earlier. Um, so you can't start too early. I, I I would start earlier. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during your process of selling your company? Um, you know, I had this thing in my mind that I wasn't going to be even thinking about spending the money or anything. I, um, uh, cause I, you have to be prepared to say no. So um, I really, I mean, it, it's really hard running your business and negotiating and going through this. It's very, very demanding. Um, but I'd been through a lot. Like I, to tell you the truth, I think the software project was hard. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I can't think of one that was really low. I, I really can't. It was just, I, I had to do it. What about the opposite? What was the highest emotional point you you had during the sale process? Uh, you know, it's interesting you asked me that because um, there was a couple of things in the, you know, when you get the, the money comes into your account and, and that actually didn't impact me at all. I had to drive across the border and um, do some banking thing. And, um, you know, when I came 
and, and it was kind of weird because I have a visa to live and work in the United States. But as soon as the, the sale happened, that visa was no longer valid, apparently. And so I'm crossing the border and, and the person could not allow me. Um, and I needed to do this to complete the sale. But I, I would say recently when I got the last check, which was less significant, it was kind of like, um, I guess that felt more freeing, um, which is kind of funny. Um, and, and the realization that um, I could do what I wanted when I wanted and I didn't have to, I wasn't obligated to anyone else. Um, that's to me was the most empowering when I finally realized, okay, um, I, I don't have to answer to anyone. Well, my wife and my family, but. <laughs> but not professionally, at least. You laid a, a like a, a little breadcrumb there and I, <laughs> I want to make sure we'd follow up on that. You said that you could not cross the border because your visa was terminated along with the sale of your business. So what happened? Did they let you through? Like, how did you stick yeah, out? Yeah, so it's interesting because I'm super compliant, very respectful of being able to do business in the United States and a huge... 95% of the business came from the United States. So I always had visas to live and work in the United States and chose to live in Vancouver. But anyway, um, so I was nervous because I had to do the banking to transfer over everything. And I had to do that in person. And so when I went across the border, um, the customs officer said, like, what, you know, why are you coming across the border? And I had to say, well, I'm, I'm doing some banking. And he could have said no. And I don't know what the solution would have been, but, um, uh, he, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. But he let you uh, so, Yeah, but, it, but I was nervous about it. And sometimes when you're nervous, you, you portray uh, like you're doing something wrong. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, what resources did you turn to for educating yourself about the selling process? So um, the M&A company, um, I mean, subsequent, I've read your books and I've listened to your, uh, your, your podcast. You're doing it in reverse, man. Yeah, but, but um, I would say if I was recommending something, the one book that I, that I really liked was Finish Big. Mm, good book. Camps, uh, book, which I really like. I mean, there's others out there, but other than your book, I'd say that one. Yeah, that hasn't come up before, but I'm glad you brought it up. Finished Big by Bo Burlingham. He was very generous and, and wrote the forward for Built to Sell. A wonderful guy, former editor-at-large at, at uh, Inc. Magazine, and a really, really unique guy. Most people know Bo from, many people know Bo from either Small Giants or A Stake in the Outcome with Jack Stack. But Finished Big is a lesser-known book, but uh, really delves into the emotional uh, aspects of selling and, and, and some of the... Um, uh, some of the kind of things to avoid and, and, and things to do, frankly, to set yourself up emotionally to kind of uh, finish big. So great book. We'll put that link. Before you, before you go off that, I, yeah. I would just like to say in that book, one of the things he mentioned was, you know, making sure you are working with or have someone that's been through the process before. And I was lucky I had a mentor that had sold his business a couple of years before. And um, so I could talk to him along the way, other than like the broker, uh, the, you know, M&A advisor. Um, so I would say, because there's, and we do this once, maybe some people are fortunate enough, they do it a couple of times, um, to have someone at your side that, um, that's got your best interests at, at heart and knows you um, and has been through it. Cause there's so many minefields. I mean, you know, we talk about the successes and it worked out great and everything, but there's so many ways of that it could fall apart easily. And um, it, it was just very helpful to have someone in my court that had been through it before. And Bo talks a lot about that in Finish Big. Yeah. So that's, that's a great recommendation. Uh, tell me you bought yourself some trophies, some, uh, some way to uh, celebrate and commemorate this success. Uh, you know, I knew you were gonna ask me this question. Um, and. To be honest, like so along the way, I you know I've, I've replaced a car, but it wouldn't be any different than what I would. I'm not an ostentatious guy. I live in the same house for the last 25 years, and we've upgraded and stuff. Um, but I, I would say, 
And I'm gonna answer it, maybe you don't like the way I'm gonna answer it, but I think the thing for me, because a trophy represents some designation that we've accomplished something um, by someone else or whatever, by definition. And to me, the trophy at the end was being able to accomplish what I did when I was a kid, that I could travel and have the financial freedom to do what I want, when I wanted, and the freedom from the things I didn't want to do. And to me, that's my trophy. And I'm sorry if that sounds um, kind of, uh, you know, esoteric or whatever, but um, I, I didn't buy any different car that I would have when I owned the company because I was doing what I wanted anyway. Love it. Love it. But it's the freedom that you relish and, and so value. And uh, I think that's a wonderful way to end our conversation. Rory, um, tell people where people can find you. Are you a, a Twitter guy or a LinkedIn guy? What's the best way for folks to reach out? The simplest is just my re- website, which is roryfat.com, R-O-R-Y-F-A-T-T.com, um, eight letters. Um, and it's F like Frank. Um, and, uh, so people can go there if they want to connect, happy to, uh, help people, uh, if they're having any roadblocks or bottlenecks in getting their business ready or just, uh, cause I've been there. Uh, some people have called me like the entrepreneurial Swiss army knife and I've been through so much. I'd like to help other people that have been through or are trying to get through some of the things in their business. So it's RoryFat.com. We'll put that in the show notes at BuiltToSell.com. Rory, thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, John. And that is it for today's episode between Rory and John. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did enjoy today's podcast, then be sure that you're subscribed to Built to Sell Radio wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you love today's episode, then be sure to share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would be truly impacted from today's conversation. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions from some of the more technical terms referenced, you can visit the episode page, which again can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, then you can actually nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to have the chance to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio. Some of the best guests we've had have been nominations. So again, be sure you head over to builttosell.com slash nominate. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, go ahead and visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 